the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening on this week's programme. We are cousin nations. And so the people of Wales, of my ilk, certainly would have looked towards Ireland, starting in that 1916 to 1921 period. We visit Frongach in North Wales and hear how local people commemorate the Irish prisoners held there after the Easter Rising. Also, it brought the culture of natural science into Ireland. It was an active research organisation that was really trying to put Ireland on the map in terms of natural science, Hmm. both in the UK and globally. The first National Museum, why natural science was an important part of Irish culture and how that led to the creation of Dublin's Natural History Museum in the mid-19th century. Plus, the origins of Ungartha Siakona and how the Guards' dramatic early history quickly established their role in the Irish state. And that's where we begin this evening. 100 years ago, the provisional government of the Irish Free State was getting to work setting up new institutions that would serve the Irish people. For example, the country was going to need a police service. On the 9th of February 1922, a meeting took place at the Gresham Hotel to set up the Civic Guard, later on Garda Siachana. Just a few months later, elements in the nascent police force mutinied at its Kildare Training Centre. To get into the reasons why this happened and how the 1922 mutiny shaped the Garda Siakona into what it is today, I'm joined by historian Dr. Liam McNiff. His 1997 book, A History of the Garda Siakona, is an in-depth study tracing the history and development of the guards. Liam, you're very welcome back to The History Show. Thank you very much. Tell us about that first meeting at the Gresham Hotel and how policing in this country started to be organised. I think it was a, you know, it was like the first meeting of the GAA in Thurles. Yeah. It was a very small meeting. It was, and I mean, it's incredible. That you had Michael Collins there, although he took no part in it, and you had the other ministers like uh, Home Affairs, Richard Mulcahy, Eamon Duggan. But in fact, it was policemen who took the most part in it. Because think of it, if you want to set up a force from scratch, it's policemen. So it was DMP, the Dublin Metropolitan Police, and RIC, mainly. And Staines was the TD from Mayo, had been in the IRA, and he was the only politician. But they met there, and within three weeks, they had drawn up a blueprint for a new police force, which was phenomenal in the circumstances. And this is all against the background of the drift civil war. And the naming of the of the force, yeah. was there any controversy or dispute about that? Well, it was supposed to be, according to the uh, organising committee, they talked about the people's guard. But in fact, in government correspondence and everything, it was referred to as the civic guard. And then a few years later, um, is it Carlos Shannon? Do you remember he was in RTE? His father yeah, was a Labour, Labour TD. Labour chief, and he yeah. actually gave the name the Guardians of the Peace, Garda Siakana. That mm. came about two years later. So tell us about how they went about setting up this new police force. They needed, obviously, an organisational structure. They needed recruits. And uh, crucially, they needed experienced people who could train them. In lots of cases, when the Irish Free State came about, it was basically just, OK, what was the previous template? Yep. Let's yep. adopt that. That's, that's, that's kind of it, because it made sense. I mean, when they were setting up police force, they had to set it from scratch. The RIC weren't. So what they did was they had four categories. One was IRA, because the IRA had been in the War of Independence. They were tried and trusted and they were being rewarded. And the Republican police, Mm. IRA as well. The next group were dismissed 
RIC or DMP. So if you think of it, dismissed or who conscientiously left would be people who didn't like their job because of it wasn't looked on good or well by During Irish. During the War of Independence. During the War of Independence. So their bona fide was good. Yeah. The next group would have been the civilian population and the last group was disbanded RIC and DMP members. Now this is important because if you left the RIC and the DMP when the RIC were being disbanded or the DMP you just left them you would have stayed with them while the War of Independence was going on now what a lot of people didn't realise is that Collins had a number of people of course working Hmm. now in fact of the 84 who were in the new recruits yeah there were there were 84 RIC people in the first 1300 of the guards and they actually half of those had been in had been in the IRA and had left the RIC and so on. The other half, some of them had remained in the RIC, but like Ned Broy and others might have given information, Mm. and Collins knew their bona fide. Now, others were kind of Johnny-come-lately, who were in the RIC, being disbanded, and then went. That does become very important yeah, later on. Yeah, so you don't know whether somebody no, you're you being don't. presented no. as a former RIC, whether no. he was an actual fact collaborating with yes, Collins yeah. or whether he was... And uh, Collins RIC wanted them in and he kind of encouraged them, but other people didn't know that. So what was then the recruitment process for new yeah. rank and file, yeah. the, the, the ordinary the ordinary civic yeah. guards? It was, in other words, it was through the whole IRA structure. Your local IRA commander recommended to some of his men that they should go and it was on a county basis. So you went to a recruiting centre in a county and there you had a medical person, uh, somebody, probably a policeman who had some idea and also you had a little educational exam. And in fact, uh, I interviewed some of the people in the early 90s who had done that and they ended up, you know, turning up in Ennis, this Tom Boland interview, turned up in Ennis, did a simple exam, got measured, was the next day, a week later, sorry, he got word, turn up in the RDS, and he was given the fare. Now, when he went up to Dublin, they double-checked. But it was from the local IRA. Mm. And that's, the, and, and like one fellow from Port Leash ended up bringing 130 up with him. And the RDS, the grounds of the RDS was the first training site, wasn't it? Yeah, in other words, because uh, they had to vacate it too for the horse show. <laughs> yeah, it's hilarious. And when they actually went there, they were so cramped they they had they went and in fact what they did was you were brought and you got a canteen you went to a canteen and you had to buy your own enamel plate knife fork spoon and mug can you imagine that <laughs> you know and then they went off and they were taken to the mess room and then they got a big galv- tea from a galvanized bucket and then they went to the stalls which would have been for the horses and they filled an empty thing with straw and in their innocence of course they thought the more straw i have the better but the more you had in it it became curved and you fell off in the night. So this is what they had to sleep there? Yeah. And what's more, as more and more came, it was so tight, you had to make, uh, you had to dress and undress standing on your bed. And then the one joke I got in my entire book was the fact that on parade one morning, one fellow was reprimanded for not having shaved properly and he claimed as nine of them were using the one mirror, he obviously shaved the wrong man. <laughs> okay, well, I'm glad we were able to let you get your one my, joke my own from joke, the book yes. in. Congratulations. Um, at the end of April, then, the recruits moved from the RDS. They moved down mm. to, to Kildare. Kildare. Was, that, was that to the Curra? It was. They took up an RIC barracks in Kildare town and a military barracks there. And it was actually improved improvement of what they had. 
and people continue to join and that's where the hassle started if you like the okay, music. So this is the 25th of April 1922 and Michael Staines who you mentioned yep. has been appointed by the provisional government as commissioner yes. of the force yep. um, you know even though he was not RIC as no. you say he was no. a political his father was an RIC man actually all right of course yeah all right indeed that, that certainly would have that would have helped obviously so they moved down to Kildare why does trouble as you say begin in in when they're in Kildare yeah. We have to remember this is all against the background of the slide to civil war from January till June. And remember too that they wanted, obviously, the guard, the new civic guard was being set up using mainly IRA men who had fought and put their lives on the on the line for Ireland. Now they're all there and they're used to their commander, their local commander. And in fact, it was the local commander who recommended they join. And when they went up, the local commander often was with them. But when promotion came, you know, for superintendent or anything like that. Who got the promotion? RIC. Now, on a, on a pragmatic way, you stand back and say, well, of course, how else could you have somebody trying to organise a division or a district without having the experience? But to these guys, the RIC were their enemy. They were the enemy yeah. Now, they didn't mind RIC as ordinary rank and file, but they didn't want them promoted. And the big problem was that Collins had a number of them there who had been double agents for him, but they didn't know that. Hmm. And they resented this promotion of the RIC to commission positions. Now, um, what in, how involved was Staines in, in all of this? I mean, when this dissatisfaction begins yeah. to emerge, what, if anything, does he do to try and quell this? Now, being fair, he seems, I suppose, if you want to be against him slightly or, or criticise him, he seemed to be a little bit out of touch. Like, the, it was an incredible situation, just what they were trying to do. But he seemed to be a little bit out of touch. And he was going ahead with what was working and so on. Whereas his next in, in line... Would Patrick Brennan. Yes. He was far more in touch and he doesn't seem to have briefed stains on it. And this was growing. There had actually been talk of this in the RDS that people were annoyed, but they said, oh, it'll change. We'll, we'll promote. But as time went on and then in May, it was announced, Staines announced that there were five RIC men appointed to senior positions in the new Civic Guard. And that was the, the what lit the fuse. So essentially what happens in Kildare mm. is, is is a mutiny. Mm, it uh, is. What form does that mutiny take? Well, very dramatic. I mean, you could make a great film out of it in the sense that they, when these five were promoted, uh, the men had formed a committee who were against this. And there were 1,300. And remember, they were armed because they had got everything from the RIC. Which was an armed force, it's yes. important to remember. Yeah, they had revolvers and all their rifles and everything had arrived down from uh, Phoenix Park to Kildare. And you had 1,300 men armed there. They formed their own committee and they signed a document saying they didn't want any more RIC. Staines called, I suppose, a face down, a parade on the main area there and he asked those loyal to him to stand out and only about a dozen stood out. The other 1,200 stayed where they were. So he left, went to government, offered a resignation, they didn't take it. Now, then what happened was the next day, what the men wanted, and this is very clear, they were not against the free state government. They were not against the treaty. They were against RIC men being promoted. That was their gripe, and they were very strong to say that. But the next day, the free state government sent down, provisional government at this stage, sent down armoured uh, lancing and things. Cars, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and wanted the, they pulled up outside the gates. Now, lucky, I think it was Superintendent Liddy, I think it was, uh, common sense went out and said to them, look, we're not in mutiny against the government. We just want these men removed. So Sean, Sean Liddy. Yeah, and there could have been, he was a TD, TD as well. And which would be cool, you were TDs, you know. Yeah. In, because again, they'd been in the War of Independence and they were TDs and uh, former IRA men. But he convinced the army. Luckily, there could have been a bloodbath. They were literally facing each other. 
And from then on, it was six weeks of stalemate. So basically the army, Liddy convinced the army, this is not to see yeah, here, go yeah. home. And, and remember, went, we're yeah. talking about, uh, you know, May and, and the civil war started, was 21st of June or something, and the four courts had been occupied. I mean, it's an incredibly tense. Yeah, during all of this, period, yes, the four courts. this is, is the background. Yeah. And, and we can't look at it, but I'd seen it that way. Now, interesting you mentioned the four courts, uh, because there's also a tie-up between, uh, between Rory O'Connor mm. and the four courts garrison and weapons. Yeah. and all of this controversy. Explain that to me. What happened there? Well, for a start, the mutiny in Kildare, they were going without pay and so on, and there's rival headquarters set up in Dublin. But on the night of the 17th of June, Thomas Daly, who was president of this men's committee, he and a few others left on the pretext that they were going to Dublin to collect a few civic guards who were on duty guarding banks and things like that. In fact, he wasn't. He rendezvoused with the anti-treaty leaders, Rory O'Connor, Ernie O'Malley and Tom Barry. So he was anti-treaty. He was. And in fact, he was only using it as a pretext to disrupt the formation of the guards. He, he rendezvoused with them. He came back to Kildare and they took all the guns, the whole army. They cleared it out and they brought it back to the forecourts. By God, did that bang heads together. Because the next day, uh, Griffith came down and Eamon Duggan and they gave the following proposals. They said that the men would be paid all money due to them. An inquiry would be held immediately and the men were suspended but not dispersed. So suspended with pay. With pay. And in fact... They and still their grievances were being... Be, would be locked up. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, that was pure, I would imagine, because the Civil War... And the Civil War started four days later. Mm. Like, and the ones had all the guns. Now, in fact, they then set up an inquiry. And I mean, you didn't have any of this resort to the High Court or anything. I mean, people would really envy it today. In three weeks, <laughs> two civil servants did an incredible job. You know, you didn't have anyone kind of stopping proceedings or going to the High Court. And they brought up inquired into what happened, the three things, what happened, anyone to be disciplined and any recommendations for the future. And that, like, was absolutely crucial. And they found out that, in fact, the vast majority of the 1300 Civic Guard were good people who wanted simply the RIC wouldn't be promoted. And did the civil servants recognise that grievance? They did. Right. Oh, that major. And they were very fair. They interviewed both sides. And also that a little cabal of anti-treaty uh, IRA who were in the force to disrupt it and use the grievance of the vast majority to cause trouble, either to stop the formation of the force or to get the arms. And in fact, the proof was of the committee of 14, five of them left with the anti-treaty group and with the arms and never came back. Now, it's a very interesting story in and of itself, obviously. Mutinies are, are they tend to be mm. quite interesting uh, for obvious reasons. Plenty of conflict, and as you say, would make a great movie. But... There's more significance. This is a more significant story because to some extent, this was instrumental in creating the Garda force that we know today. Yeah, yeah what's incredible are two things, I think. One, very few people know that there was a mutiny in the guards. You all hear of the army one, which was crucial. And secondly, that they were armed when they were set up. They all had the Webley revolvers, I think that's you say it, and they had rifled some of them. But in fact... Precisely because there was a mutiny, this inquiry in three weeks, if you like, the first setting up, sorry, back in the Gresham Hotel, did the nuts and bolts to actually get it running. This inquiry but six there months later... was an assumption in the Gresham that this force would be armed. Yeah, yeah. Because the RIC was yeah, armed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and they didn't think of it. They just did it. And the arms came from the depot down to them, so it was followed through in Kildare. But this other, uh, under McAuliffe and, and uh, Shields, worked out a kind of an ethos or a philosophy for the force and the move towards more civilian. And precisely because they had mutinied, they then said there'll be no guns. And it took a month or two, but the guns were taken off them. 
and all handed in. And they also said they started this process of it's going to be more civilian. Now, that was a very brave uh, decision. The RIC had very much been a paramilitary yeah, force. Yeah, although they had. And of course, now the other thing is, I mean, proof of that was instead of having, the when the guards set up, they had about 25% less stations and 25% less personnel in the 26 counties because they weren't looking for political mm. enemies, kind of. But but the unarmed is unbelievable. In the, mid, in the middle of a civil war. So basically, had the mutiny not taken place, we might have had an armed police we force. could have, yeah. yeah. I mean, because the norm was England, every, you go abroad, you go to America, everywhere, they're all armed. Mm. So it is unusual. Uh, and the other thing was sending them out in the civil war. I mean, at times they went out the civil war and anti-treaty groups came along and they used to burn their over, take their overcoats, take their bikes, burn the furniture and try to wreck the barracks. And the boys just had to stand there. Yeah, But they were accepted then as unarmed. Okay, well explain to me then a little bit because all of this is happening as the civil war is really mm. getting underway. What, if any, role did civic guards have during the civil war or do they not? were they not dispersed throughout the country until after the, the, the civil war was over? They were dispersed from about August, September on and usually what happened was we said there was a group sent to swords. They might send 25 and then in four or five days or a week. Now, first of all, they'd have checked from the army that that was a safe place, that the war had finished there. And they would then, from that 25 or 30, send out to maybe other places, uh, another five from that 25. Mm. But I mean, some of the irony is, some guards whom I, one or two I interviewed and others who records I found, uh, talked about arriving in barracks with the hole in the roof where the IRA had burned them. Do you remember in, in was it Easter 1920? Yeah. They'd burned the April, RIC barracks. And what happens? These IRA guys arrive back to barracks, you know, one guy in Dundalk, and the, the roof is, you know, and he has to put up with that for 12 months because his friends did it. But this is a force that is representative of the Irish Free State is, yeah. and Republicans are fighting against the yep. Irish Free State. Does that mean in the, you know, the, the classical cliche, they became legitimate targets? No, two things happened. I think precisely because they weren't armed, it helped them. Now, originally, they actually, even in no, October, they were attacking uh, IRA at times. But straight away, when O'Duffy came, he took all the arms off them. So they weren't regarded as legitimate targets in the sense that now there were one or two of them killed. One by accident, another with, uh, he was a mistaken identity because his brother had been in the RIC. But they weren't legitimate targets. And precisely because they weren't armed, they, it gave them a security. And the people were, like I came across thousands of begging letters to the government begging to send out the guards, especially licensing laws. Mothers, of course, and sisters talking about the husband and the brother and the son mm. drinking far too much. This mm. kind of idea. And you couldn't collect rates and a whole lot of things. So people were dying for them to come out. OK, you mentioned an interesting uh, uh, name there. And I know that he's not centrally associated with the mutiny, but Ono Duffy. So Staines yeah. is the commissioner. Staines doesn't last very long. No, he, he's, he officially, in fact, after the mutiny, he only appeared a few times in Kildare. He's not really. And there was another fellow I offered the job and O'Duffy then came came along and he took it. I think there were there were civil servants who briefly were involved, were there not, in, in the administration. But O'Duffy then really he did, effectively yeah. becomes yeah. the second he commissioner he did. of the he did. of the of uh, It was a Sean O'Murahul, I think, was offered it but didn't take it. And then O'Duffy comes. And like whether you liked him or not, he was full of energy and power. You know, he was ahead he ended up going away off the rails and in fact coming again wanted to get rid of him in twenty five. But by God, did he do everything? Like so he they called wanted to get rid of him eight years before. Yes, Cumming and Gale. Yes, Cumming and Gale had enough of him, and yet at the same time, his energy. The men liked him. He was very strict, but he gave this great esprit de corps. He was always talking with this, you know, and it gave them a great sense of their purpose and of everything. And 
you know, this group who came in at no training, and in, in a number of years, they were doing their jobs. Now, he did, he arrived in some place in Mead, and uh, they were in a library, and he found underwear and everything all over the books, so he, he gave off hell to them. You know, this kind of idea. But... He was a disciplinarian. He was, but it worked at the time. Now, he obviously was, you know, went off the rails, kind of, and Common Gale wanted to get rid of him in 25, 26. Oh, you want them rearmed, by the way. In 25, 26, he suggested, because... Putching ones were attacking the guards of places and there was a superintendent, I think, killed down in Tipperary, anti, anti, an IRA group or that, and he wanted them rearmed, but the government sensibly said, look, the civil war is over. But they stuck with him. Okay, so this <clears> is 100 years of Angarda Siakona. The meeting that set up the force took place in February of 1922, so the Angarda Siakona have been around for a century now. And Dr. Liam McNiff, the author of the book, A History of the Garda Siakona. Liam, thank you very much indeed for talking to us about this famous mutiny, or not so famous mutiny, but now a little bit more famous. After the break, we'll be visiting North Wales and hearing a Welsh perspective on the legacy of Frungoch internment camp. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Frungoch in Wales is known in Irish history as Ulskull Narevloja, the University of Revolution. The makeshift prison camp that housed Irish prisoners in 1916 became a fertile breeding ground for Irish rebel ideology. We're going to hear now how this history is remembered in northwest Wales, where the internment camp was located and where a new museum dedicated to the history of the camp is being constructed. Our reporter, Connor Sweetman, has the story. As you drive from the market town of Bala in north Wales, along the A4212 road towards the Linchelen Reservoir, you'll pass a layby a little area at the side of the road where vehicles can pull over and stop. But if you don't stop, you won't know it's there. Nussled into the hedgerow at the side of the road, there is a monument. And on that monument, there are words inscribed in Irish. Words in Welsh. And words in English. 1,800 Irish men were interred here after the Easter Rising, Dublin, 1916. This is the site of Frongach internment camp. My name's Mabon Ap Gwynfor, uh, and I'm the member of the Senedd Welsh Parliament uh, for the constituency of Dwyfor Meirionydd in northwest Wales. Mabon studied history at university and in fact did his dissertation on James Connolly and Porrick Pierce. And whenever he meets Irish people, the conversation regularly turns to the 1916 Rising and the rebels who were interred in Wales in a place that we call Frongoch. And of course, I didn't know when I first heard that, but I didn't know what they were talking about. Because to me and to us, it's Frongoch, uh, a completely different pronunciation. So Frongoch is in the, the old county of Merionmith. It's a very, very rural village. It's not even a village. 
to Hamlet, but the history of Rongoch has a very proud liberal, the old liberal tradition, and strongly non-conformist as well, uh, and great independence of thought there. Uh, and it's a, a very Welsh-speaking area, you know, where the majority of people who live there speak Welsh and have been for the last, well, forever. So, um, you know, it's it hasn't been anglicised as much as, as other places. So it, it's it was an interesting choice for a prison camp, but you can see why they did it because of the structures that were there. It was very rural and very far from the towns in the centre of the populations of of England. So as far as, as the British military were concerned and the British establishment, it was a safe place. You know, dump them in a rural countryside where they can't do any damage is probably the thinking, you know. But over time, it, it became a symbol. Just up the road from the Frangach Monument, about a five-minute drive, there's a huge lake with a controversial history. Kim Kellin. And it's a man-made reservoir, which was developed in the 1950s and 1960s. But it was the fact that Liverpool had asked whether or not they could take control of that land and, and, and drown it. And the people of Wales said, no, we don't want you to do that. There's a community living there. There's you know, a whole lot of farms. There's a little village there. Um, and it became a cause celebre for us in Wales because the people of Wales fought against the drowning of that community, but it was drowned against our will by the British establishment. So that became uh, part of of the call for more Welsh autonomy. Uh, And the tie-in between Vrangoch and and Trewerin, within the same square mile, there's a synergy there, certainly. Ironically, there's one British political figure who is considered an enemy by many Irish people, but is also celebrated by many people in Wales as a champion of Welsh nationalism. I'm going to name a uh, mention name to you now, which you're not going to like very much. A certain man called David Lloyd George, and Lloyd George was from where was it? About thirty miles, forty miles from from Vrongoch. Um, he was from that same tradition, that same Welsh-speaking tradition. Uh, as far as domestic affairs is concerned, there's a lot to celebrate with with Lloyd George. He uh, secured the pension because of his experience looking at poverty in, in North West Wales and the way that Welsh farmers were being mistreated and they didn't have any money to fall back on when, when they were old. You know? So domestically, there's a lot of things that, that Lloyd George is celebrated for, but uh, certainly internationally, you've got Ireland, you've got Palestine, there's a, lot, a whole lot of things that uh, Lloyd George has to answer for. But you know that was part of that tradition. And in the 20s, Lloyd George introduced a lot of those progressive policies domestically which were part of that process, and then that raised the awareness that, okay, there is something worthwhile, some good ideas in Wales. In the 1950s, there was the establishment of the Welsh capital city in Cardiff. Then there was the adoption of the national flag. And these victories, while they may seem small, were hard won, and they were essential to fostering Welsh national identity. You know, these things were stepping stones along the way to greater awareness. And and throughout this period, as the people of Wales were fighting for autonomy, for uh, sovereignty, for greater powers for Wales, they were looking elsewhere, they were seeking inspiration. And clearly, the one single constant was our immediate neighbour, Ireland. There's a kinship between Ireland and Wales, that awareness that we are cousin nations. And so the people of Wales, of my ilk, certainly would have looked towards 
Ireland all along this period, starting in that 1916 to 1921 period, and the fact that that a lot of these revolutionaries were interned here, it meant a lot then for us to look at that, and that's what inspired us. In 2016, in the lead-up to the 100-year anniversary of the 1916 Rising, many events were being planned at Frangoch. One local man began collecting artefacts related to the old prison camp and even set up a makeshift museum in his shed. My name's Alwyn Jones and I live in Vrangoch near the town of Bala. In 2016, as part of the centenary celebrations, Alwyn hosted several groups at his home and showed off his incredible collection of documents, artefacts and photographs related to the old prison camp. What are the photos of? Well, photos of a, a, a bridge, a wooden bridge crossing over to the, the playing fields, just christened the, the Rangoch Croke Park. Another photo of some gas huts outside a house in, in Rangoch here. And the house is still here, so we could compare the two. And there's also a photo of the camp commandant, Hegate Lambert, and other people, well, including his wife and daughter, outside the commandant's house and the commandant's house is still standing and I don't know how, how many other officers there are several officers in, in, in the photo including two censors who, who went through the letters coming in and coming out to the camp Since 2016 over 400 people have signed the guest book at Alwyn's exhibit In 2020 he obtained funding and planning permission to construct a purpose-built museum and visitor centre. The main structure is now complete and only the interior is to be finished and fitted out. Alwyn hopes to have the museum open by Easter 2022 and to keep the rich history of Frangoch alive. Back in 2016... Here's Mabon again. I had the pleasure of attending a football match, Gaelic football match. The match Mabon attended was the All-Britain Junior Football Shield between Hertfordshire and Yorkshire. The piping that you hear in the background was recorded on that day. The game was held to commemorate a famous match that was played in Frongoch prison camp 100 years earlier. After the 1916 Rising, with so many inter-county players imprisoned in Frongoch, the camp hosted what became known as the All-Ireland Behind Barbed Wire. This was a legendary match between Kerry and Louth, with Kerry winning by just one point. It was, it was an odd experience to go there and think, wow, I'm going to play a football match here, of all places. And, and there's a, it's, it's a flat piece of land, but there's a little bank um, that raises from it and, and looks down. So you could go on that bank and it was like a, a, a natural seating area. You could watch the game, you know. Uh, and someone was there reading the, the proclamation and the president of the GAA, I think, was there as well at the time. Um, and you've got the Southern Snowdonia Mountains all around you. As someone who's followed or studied uh, that 1916 rebellion, it was a, a special moment to have that match um, and witness it and be there. Um, yeah, it brought a tear to the eye, uh, to be honest. Connor Sweetman was reporting there with that Welsh perspective on the legacy of Frongoch internment camp and the movement to build a museum in the area to commemorate the Irish prisoners who were held there. 
After the break, I'll be joined by Sharon Murphy to talk about the origins of Dublin's Natural History Museum. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. We're going to look now at the history of one of Ireland's most popular cultural sites, Dublin's Natural History Museum. Housing an intact 19th century scientific collection, it offers visitors a glimpse into the early years of natural history. You may know it as the Dead Zoo, but as we'll hear, this institution is about much more than the display of static natural materials. From the time it opened in 1857, Ireland's first public museum served as an educational venue, frequented by ordinary citizens and visitors, as well as the leading figures in natural science. A recently published book from Cork University Press, The First National Museum, Dublin's Natural History Museum of the 19th Century, explores the institution's origins. The author is Dr. Shara Murphy, who joins me now in studio. Shara, you're very welcome to the to the History Show. The focus of the book is primarily on, I suppose, a, a cross-section or a short period of the history of the Natural History Museum, 1840 to 1870, the Victorian period. Was there a huge interest in natural history during those years? There was, and that's one of the reasons I chose that period to talk about, because that period in Ireland is often not explored outside the political history. So natural history was the great citizen science project of the 19th century, and science was deeply embedded into Victorian culture. So the century's social and intellectual discourses were were characterized by a kind of constant flow of new scientific information. And that was based around kind of the global, that was due to a few different things, global exploration and colonization, developments in technology and manufacturing like steam-powered travel or improvements in printing, the same conditions that drove things like the rise in literacy or uh, the increased consumption of newspapers also drove the popularity of, of natural science. So because of that, natural science is one of the few sciences that was most easily grasped by the general public. Collecting specimens didn't require that much in the way of equipment and reasonably Price publications were kind of everywhere. You could teach yourself natural history. So anyone could choose an area to study and start a collection and educate themselves and, and start to trade specimens and informations with other people, go to classes, collect things, donate them to museums. So that's one of the reasons I chose to focus on that area. And the collections that form the basis of the museum actually began under the stewardship of the RDS, not in the in, in location-wise in the RDS where we know of it today, but actually much closer to where the, the Natural History Museum is. So tell us about that linkage. Well, the RDS did an awful lot of things for the improvement of Ireland in, in the 19th century, but they established, one of the things they did earlier than that in the 18th century was establish a museum in the basement of the Irish Parliament in 1733. So they started displaying objects um, as part of their overall improvement goals. And... At the start, it was kind of resolutely practical. They, what they meant to do was show landowners about the things on their land and to make their land more productive. So those exhibits were intended to familiarize the landowning classes uh, with what was on their land and with advances in, in technology. Those displays later moved to Hawkins Street, and then they moved to Leinster House in 1815, which is where the museum uh, was opened on kind of six rooms in the first floor. So that's where it actually begins. It begins in what we now think of as, as Dáil Éireann, yeah. not in the building where it's housed, which is right next to Dáil Éireann. Yes, it's, it, it began in, in Leinster House. It's so familiar to me now, that fact, um, that I'm always surprised that people don't know it, but people are quite surprised to find that out. So, yes, you'd go a big giant staircase up to the first floor of Leinster House and, and wend your way through six tiny, what used to be bedrooms, for the Duke of Leinster's family. So tell us then about the, the building 
which we now think of as the Natural History Museum. When did that come about? How did that come about? Well, that was kind of in the works for a long time because those six rooms outgrew their usefulness very, very quickly. The collections grew very quickly. And in the early 1840s, the RDS started talking about building a new museum. And that discussion went kind of around the houses until the early 1850s when everything kind of aligned in terms of money and availability for that to happen. So they they started building that building in, in 1856. And it was partly spurred on by the idea that the British Association for the Advancement of Science was holding its annual conference in Dublin in 1857. So that building was rushed a little bit to meet that deadline. They wanted to they wanted to launch the building in August of 1857 when the British Association met in Ireland. And is that why there are still legacy issues with the building? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because the the construction was rushed in 1857 when it opened. It was a, it was brilliant. You can read about it in the, in the newspapers from August of 1857. It was a really brilliant fashionable party and lots of stuff happened at the museum, but the ground floor was unfinished. The floors were dirt, effectively, and the walls were concrete. And um, they kind of dressed it up, but it was nothing had been installed. And they, they fitted up the first floor for a kind of grand soiree on the Thursday night of that week. And a few events took place there. Dr. Livingston, Dr. Stanley Livingston had just returned from Africa, and they managed to snaffle him to give a talk. And Lord Kelvin gave a talk on the laying of the Atlantic Cable and the science behind it. And there were, you know, there were lots of, there was a big kind of what they call the conversazione, a big, giant, sort of very fashionable party on the Thursday evening. But they never, fin- they never finished the roof either, did they? They didn't. No, well, so what, what happened in the aftermath of all of that was in late 1857, early 1858, when it snowed, the glass roof leaked. And at the time, it was a pitched glass roof. And one of the things that happened when it was being renovated afterward was that the glazed flat ceiling that we're familiar with um, was installed. So that's that has been faulty and problematic ever since. So that's one of the things that, that they're working to rectify now. So that ceiling was basically to hold the water that was coming in. Yes, through it the was roof. to prevent the specimens. Well, the, the, the glass roof let in too much light, so the specimens were becoming faded. Yeah, and it leaked so that the collections were in danger. So that's it was to kind of mitigate the light and also to protect them from water. Um, you don't like the the name, the popular name of the Natural History Museum, and that's why I've been calling it studiously the Natural History Museum <laughs> as we are face to face. Behind your back, I'll call it the Dead Zoo, but you don't like that. <laughs> I am a loner <laughs> in my own little corner on that one. Um, the more I studied it, and I know why people call it that, um, but the more I studied this museum, the more it became clear to me that it, in its day, was an active scientific institution and that the kind of nostalgia that surrounds it now, which I understand entirely, and people love it. I was just having a conversation uh, with your researcher outside about the Dead Zoo, and Nigel Monaghan, the curator, always laughs at me um, about that. But the thing that became clear to me as I studied it was that it was an active scientific institution in its day. It brought the culture of natural science into Ireland. It drew in normal citizens. It drew in people from who were kind of scientific practitioners, but were away in the military, so, you know, military doctors and things like that. The men of science, and I can go back to that term later, if you like, of Ireland saw it as a kind of hub. So it was an active research organization that was really trying to put Ireland on the map in terms of natural science, Mm. both in the UK and globally. So it had as much a scientific function as the botanical gardens, the zoological gardens, and all of those. yes. And I find that the, the language around it, the idea that it's a museum of a museum or that it's a, a dead zoo, kind of obscures that. And it, it, it 
doesn't really say what the museum did and what its importance to Irish history and Irish the history of science in Ireland was, or the history of museums in Ireland, indeed. So, yeah, but I know I'm willing to occupy my lonely corner. <laughs> I mean, to some extent, it's, I know it's about, it's about science, but it's also about taxidermy, isn't it? The specimens are basically, uh, in some cases, massive examples, but they are examples of the art of the taxidermist, aren't they? They are, which has changed a lot over the centuries, as, as anyone who's been to the museum and seen some of the, some of the taxidermical examples will know. Taxidermy is an interesting way of talking about science and an interesting way of preserving things because the, the museum preserves specimens in a few different ways. One of them is obviously pinning insects. One of them is, you know, in liquid. And then there are the, the examples that everyone thinks about the dead zoo when they think about. It's what makes people call the museum the dead zoo are the taxidermy animals. But Oftentimes, taxidermy and animals are simply skins that are stretched over a structure, and they, they don't really retain very much of their own biology. The eyes are often glass. Um, the teeth may be real. This, there may be a skull underneath the skin, but oftentimes they're basically a sculpture underneath with a skin stretched over it that show us what that animal looked like. So that's not true today. Today there will be sort of fiberglass, blown fiberglass molds that skins are put over. But at the time, they would be made from wire, from straw, from wood, from clay, from any number of things underneath. So what you're seeing is oftentimes the the taxidermist's interpretation of the animal, which sometimes is brilliant. Like the, the tiger that's there was, I believe, taxidermied by Roland Ward of London, who was very famous and was really brilliant taxidermist. But some of them were taxidermied by people who didn't really know what they're doing. The Williams Brothers of Dame Street also did a brilliant job as well. There's a lot of their stuff in the collection. But the taxidermy animals are more, oftentimes our ideas about what animals should look like rather than what the animal actually looked Mm -hmm. like in terms of scientific object. Tell us then about the role that the Natural History Museum played in the development of education in Ireland. It was really interesting. Um, it played a role in lots of different areas of education. Now, the, the Royal Dublin Society ran a number of classes in popular science, so they did chemistry, zoology, uh, natural history, geology. So the, the Natural History Museum's collections were used in those, and those were kind of general courses of, say, 12 to 15 lectures that people could go to either during the day or during the evening, and those were also migrated out into the provinces in a series of provincial lectures, and oftentimes specimens from the museum would be taken out into the provincial lectures. One of the areas that it was also influential in that people don't really think about, even though it's connected to the way that people use the museum today, is that they were also attached to the schools of design. So the schools that eventually became NCID also had access to all the RDS's collections. So the schools of drawing and design would, would refer to the Natural History Museum's collections, um, and also to the Botanical Museum. They were sent specimens from the Botanical Museum on a pretty regular basis. So they began a a series of popular scientific lectures and classes that were free. They also influenced artistic production based around the principles of John Ruskin and John Ruskin's idea that beauty and nature must always go hand in hand. So that's that's partly why the museum was used for that. The book focuses primarily on the years 1840 to 1870. And of course, not quite bang in the middle, towards the end of that period, you see the publication of Darwin's Origin of of Species. In the history of the museum, is or are Darwin's theories and Darwinist ideas on natural selection, are they being debated? Are they playing out in any way? They are, but it's kind of invisible. The most spectacular public debate around Darwin's ideas in Ireland took place in 1874, 
when um, a Carlo-born physicist, John Tyndall, gave what he called um, the Belfast Address. So he's a scientific naturalist and, and gave this kind of what some people consider an incendiary address saying that, you know, nature should only be looked at and understood through scientific means. Before that, it's kind of hard to find any really clear debates around Darwin's ideas. And and they didn't really take place in the Natural History Museum because the, the curator at the time, Alexander Cart, who's one of my heroes from sort of 1851 to 1881, was very interested in keeping everyone involved in the museum and keeping as many people involved and happy as he could. He was a real kind of coalition builder. So he chose not to be, con- well, I, there's no writing that says he chose not to be controversial. In my reading of his records, uh, I think he chose not to be controversial because he had lots of people of all different points of view. So you can't really tell from the museum's records how Darwinism played out or what kind of conversations were happening. What we ha- what you can see it is in conversations behind the scenes or, or correspondence between friends or, you know, kind of references between people in private. So, for instance, um, there are letters basically from one of Alexander Cart's assistants when he was in London, when Cart was in London, J. Emerson Reynolds wrote to him and said, oh, I hope Darwin doesn't catch you and, you know, make you a convert to his theories. <laughs> um, and there was a series, there were two scientific papers given at an RDS lecture on the same material. So there was a man named Edward Brennan who found um, prehistoric remains of kind of megafauna in a cave in Waterford. And Brennan gave a paper on his find that basically said, look, due to the biblical flood, these were all jumbled together. And he kind of attributes the condition of them to biblical history. And Alexander Cart gave a paper on the same evening about the same materials, but he puts them in a kind of pan-European framework. He names all the specimens. He talks about how they sit in with Cuvier's ideas of extinction. And, and he basically places them in a kind of scientific context that connects Ireland to the rest of European science. He doesn't directly gainsay Brennan's point of view, but he also just kind of goes around it very politely and then says, oh, Mr. Brennan's brilliant and I hope more people bring us these things and he's, isn't he wonderful for bringing us this stuff. So, <laughs> A real um, diplomat. Very diplomatic and, and you see that happening a lot. People people refer to it, but it's it doesn't seem to be an open... Hmm. So it's kind of subtext. There's a subtext, yeah. but but it's and you can tell people were talking about it behind the scenes. But there's hmm. nothing official. There's nothing in the official records. Now the book is called the First National Museum, and it's interesting. It's significant uh, that our first national museum was a science museum. Science not being a thing that we necessarily associate with Ireland or with Ireland in the 19th century. I think that was one of my my favorite things about doing this research was that science was deeply embedded into popular culture in the 19th century, to the extent that when the first purpose-built museum on the island was made, it was a natural history museum, it was a science museum. The first museum that was publicly funded was was prior to that, the Museum of Economic Geology, which ended up becoming um, the Museum of Irish Industry, was publicly funded, but not to the same extent. So both of them were science museums. And, And I think that runs against this idea that cultural nationalism wasn't interested in science, because that's kind of not true. There were choices made in the early state around what to focus on. And Nicholas White says that, you know, that the news, basically the new state wasn't necessarily against science, and it wasn't hostile to modernism, it was hostile to spending money. So, um, <laughs> even the, on pensions. Even on pensions. So the, um, you know, the early state made choices to focus on things that were cultural and archaeological rather than scientific. But the records of the Natural History Museum show that actually, at least in the case of natural history, science was deeply embedded in in 19th century Irish culture, which is something that surprised me and I think 
is one of the nicest outcomes of the book. Well, it's a much beloved institution and it's great now to have a history of that institution to find out where it came from and that it was in fact our first national museum that's the title of the book the first national museum dublin's natural history museum in the 19th century it's published by cork university press and my guest is the author dr shara murphy shara many thanks for joining us on the history show thank you for inviting me miles enjoyed it That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, for me, Miles Dungan, and producer Logan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>